Welcome to We the People, a podcast giving a Christian perspective on news, politics, hot topics, and so much more. Hosted by Rodney Nesmith, worship pastor at New Life Fellowship in Lovelock, Nevada. This week, Rodney is joined by Mark Burrell, author of Rediscovering the American Covenant, Roadmap to Restore America. They're discussing if President Trump's indictment impacts his Christian supporters. The latest episode of We the People will start right after this quick commercial break. At Jersey Mike's, they slice your order fresh right in front of you. And let me tell you, watching that can send a rush of emotions through a person. Excitement, impatience, baby-like wonder, indecisive, anticipatory chewing, nervous pacing, happy claps, and finally, jealousy, because that's this guy's sub. I should order one. Mm, Good idea. Sliced right in front of you. The Jersey Mike's thing. A sub above. And now it's time for We the People. Here's Rodney. Hey, good evening, everybody. This is Rodney, your host of the We the People podcast, and have a great guest for you tonight. Uh, Mark Burrell is our guest, and he is the author of the book called Rediscovering the American Covenant, Roadmap to Restoring America. And Mr. Burrell, Mark, thank you for being on with us. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. All right. Tell us about this book. Yeah, so uh, so this book is about the American founding. It's a slightly different take on the founding. I, I try and answer a couple of important questions that I, I feel need to be more uh, clear to the American public. And the first one is, what's the root cause of what's going on in America today? Now, uh, my background is I'm an engineer. I tell people I'm a recovering engineer. I've got almost 40 years <laughs> in, uh, in the field. And if you've ever worked with an engineer, you know what I mean when I say I'm a recovering engineer, because we <laughs> tend to get into too many details. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, uh, what engineers are, are you know, usually pretty good at is what's the root cause problem for you know, what's going on? It's what engineers love to do. We like to fix things. Sure. And so when you look at what's going on in America, and you, you know, you listen to the political pundits and what you'll often hear is, well, the problem is we're not following the Constitution or, you know, we've just got bad policy and we've got to elect a better person in order to address those issues. And while those are problems, they are not the root cause problem of what's happening in America. The root cause problem, I assert in my book, Rediscovering the American Covenant, is that we have a significant percentage of our fellow citizens who fundamentally reject our national founding covenant. And that's not the constitution. Our national founding covenant is the declaration of independence. And so it's the declaration where we have our founding principles, things like there's this law of nature and of nature's God, which is code for the moral law as summarized by the 10 commandments. It's in the first paragraph. And their whole argument was that their separation was based basically on the fact that the King of England and Parliament had been governing immorally. And so then they go on to talk about inalienable God-given rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Right. And for this reason, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers by the consent of the government. So these are our founding principles. And they're very different from our operating principles. <laughs> you know, when, yes, when the they whole are. Country, they are. 
And when the declaration took place, uh, right away they started working on the Articles of Confederation, which was to be our operating document. And, you know, they were looking at things like uh, the sovereignty of the people, checks and balances, you know, things that they wanted to put in place to try and make sure that America would be on the right track following our founding principles. And then, of course, it didn't work out too well. So we ended up with the convention in 1787 and eventually our, our constitution that we have today, which is a great document. But it's got our operating principles, not our founding principles. And so if you don't understand that, then, uh, you know, as an engineer, I would say you're you're not solving the root cause problem. And so right. if we really want to turn America around, my assertion is we've got to deal with this issue of who are we as Americans? And the answer to that question is bound up in the Declaration of Independence. So that's the first thing I try and do with the book. Okay. The second thing I try and do with the book is to build the case that citizen that Christians have an active citizenship duty in the communities and nations where they live to help establish liberty and justice for all. And I do this by going through the Bible, starting at the beginning and asking the question, you know, where do we learn about government? And the answer is we first learn about it in Genesis 9, right after the flood. Mm-hmm. And this is where God... He reaffirms what his his expectations are for the nations. And he says four things. I expect nations to be fruitful, to increase in number, to fill the earth, and to govern justly. Those are the four things. And in Genesis 5 and 6, where he basically says, I expect nations to govern justly, he uses very strong language. He says, I demand an accounting for the shedding of innocent blood, for the taking of an innocent life. I demand an accounting. And he says it. Three times. So like this so, is so, so in other words, he means it. He means it. <laughs> yes. Like if your dad told you something three times. Oh, I was usually, in trouble. Yeah. Usually you didn't hear it the third time. It was, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So yes, yeah, so this is the this is where God gives mankind the institution of civil government. And this is the reason to believe why things could be different after the flood. Because it, you know, think about it. God wipes out mankind because they were violent and it was terrible. He spares Noah and his family, but it begs the question. So what's going to be different to prevent this whole thing from happening again? Mm-hmm. And so this is why God says, listen, I, you get your act together. I demand it. And then we learn through the nation of Israel some very important things that I cover in the book. The first thing we learn is how to start a nation. And we learn this from from pretty much from Exodus 19 through 24, where God basically starts the nation of Israel by a four-step process. And so here are the four steps. First thing, you have to acknowledge God and his supremacy and his moral law. Second thing, you have to appeal to him for help. Third thing, you have to commit. And then the fourth thing is you have to declare it publicly. Mm -hmm. And, And if you read through that section, you see that that is the process that God used through Moses to establish, officially establish the nation of Israel. And the reason I call that out is because now that I called out those four things, when I'm teaching this, I like to show the Declaration of Independence at this point and say, right. okay, what do you see in the first two paragraphs? You see an acknowledgement of God, an acknowledgement mm-hmm. of the law of nature and of nature's God, the moral law, an acknowledgement of what God expects for a civil government to do. And then in the last paragraph, you, you have just soaring language. It starts out by saying, appealing to the supreme ruler of the universe 
for the rectitude of our intentions. Rectitude means truthfulness. In other words, they were saying, listen, this is the vision for civil government. This is what we believe. And it was based on the Bible. Mm-hmm. Here are all the charges against the, the you know, the, the king of England. Not one, not three, not five, 27. <laughs> and, and then they say, you know, appealing to you for the rectitude, the truthfulness of our intentions, uh, we're going to separate. And then that last sentence is uh, incredible. We pledge our, we, we mutually pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And then they sign this document, which means hanging if they're caught. Yep. I mean, they were committed. They were fully committed. And then what, what's the last thing they did? They declared it. You know, in fact, that's the title of yeah. the document. Yeah. It, we, you know, we look at the declaration today like it's a newsflash or, you know, an 18th century Twitter feed. That's not what it was. It was a covenant mm-hmm. fashioned after the pattern that God showed us through the nation of Israel. And the founders followed that pattern to the letter. And then in the book, I, I, I lay out seven principles for governing that comes right out of the example of Israel. And, uh, and I, so I explain all this because of that second objective of the book, which is to really build an airtight case for Christians have a citizenship duty. God, God expects yeah. people to step forward and lead these nations so that they govern justly. So who, who does he expect to do that? And I, I talk about four groups in the book, you know, group one, people that don't know God. They've never mm-hmm. read the Bible. Does God expect them to step forward and lead? No. How about group two? <laughs> they reject God. They've read the Bible. They reject him. Mm-hmm. Is God expecting those folks to step forward and lead? No, clearly no. not. You know, group three, uh, new believers who are, you know, they're trying to figure out their faith. God bless them. And, you know, they're learning about the how to share their testimony and maybe their spiritual gifts. And yeah. they're starting, you know, to serve in the parking lot ministry or the coffee ministry. <laughs> right. But they're not the ones most likely that God's expecting to lead. Mm-hmm. He's expecting mature believers who've read the Bible. We're, we're the ones that are supposed to understand it and apply yeah. it. And so I, I build the case that we have, we're the ones that God is expecting to step forward. And it's, it's not an America thing. It's an everywhere thing. No matter where we live, mm-hmm. we're the ones that are supposed to step forward and try and govern justly. And so I'm trying to refute the modern evangelical establishment position that we're not supposed to be engaged. We're just supposed to be about evangelism. And, I, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. <laughs> but yeah, so that's what the book's about. Root yeah, cause, and I totally disagree with that with that premise that a lot of people have that we're not supposed to be involved. I completely, absolutely disagree with that. Yeah, I did too, but I couldn't defend it biblically. Mm-hmm. And that was the question I had. I started with this question in the mid-90s. If uh, And I grew up around the Philadelphia area, so it was very patriotic. Mm-hmm. You know, no one had to tell me that I'm supposed to serve my neighbor. You know, we did it. My mom and dad rolled, modeled it, and we were a patriotic family. But I couldn't defend it from right. the Bible. And so, and, and I look at this question of if the revolution was all about, you know, taxation without representation. In other words, they didn't want to pay their taxes. But Jesus <laughs> said, you should pay your taxes. Mm-hmm. And how could the whole thing have been biblically justifiable? That was where I started. And, mm-hmm. and so uh, around the early 90s, I had a, a wonderful spiritual mentor. Actually, my wife and I had a, a mentoring couple who poured into us. And uh, he's one of the best teachers I've ever listened to. And he took me through theology. 
and systematic theology, which for an engineer is like, uh, you know, okay, now I get it. Yeah. Basically applying the scientific method to, to the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I realized around 2000 that uh, I needed to apply my systematic theology training to this topic. And so I, I read through the Bible and I, I looked at all this and I tried to lay it out, not be biased with, you know, anything I'd heard. And, uh, and, and honestly, I was flabbergasted because there are thousands <laughs> of verses that talk about it. And when you, when you lay it all out end to end, you can understand how, for instance, Romans 13, which is what modern evangelical leaders point to. They'll say, Romans 13 says we should su- submit. 1 Timothy 2 says that we should pray for our leaders. Mm-hmm. And so their theology is submit and pray, come what may. That's pretty <laughs> much that's pretty much what they say. Yeah. They can't talk about this in, in church. They marginalize people who try and bring it up. And, uh, and that's their theology. But uh, going through it, I, you know, I had an epiphany and, and I started incorporating it into my teaching. And um, over 10 years ago, I started writing. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do, but I, but I realized that there wasn't a book like this out there. A lot of great Christian history books out there, mm-hmm. but not one that biblically justified active Christian citizenship. So that's, that's how I got into this project. Nice. And yeah, it's it's interesting too because it's, I mean, if you're really, if you're paying attention, if you're reading the Bible and you look at it, and you read it correctly, I'll put it that way, and uh, you will find that there's nothing in there that tells us to stay out of government or or anything like. There's nothing like that in there that tells us we shouldn't be involved. In fact, it tells us pretty much the opposite. Yeah, yeah, it does. And uh, just to augment what you just said, the the interpretational approach that I was taught and that to me makes sense is start at the beginning, assume literal, assume everything is literally true, Mm -hmm. recognize that there's some allegory uh, involved. And and then it's a matter of uh, curve fit. You know, that's an engineer's way of looking at it. How, you know, what's the equation that matches all the information? Right. Uh, the best, because that's probably the truth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of smart people before you and I uh, <laughs> have really figured this out. So a lot of this was just, again, rediscovering what right. uh, a lot of people had clearly uh, figured out, primarily right. due to the first Great Awakening, by the way, which is when all the founders were growing up. That, that's mm-hmm. that's where they got it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they, they were living out their faith. They weren't deists. I mean, they, they, uh, these guys were spiritual giants. When you, when you understand the theology, right? And then you look at what they did and what they said, uh, the, the theology gives what they did and said context. So you understand it better. Yeah. And so so yeah, they, they're the ones that literally put everything on the line because they put their lives on the line for the founding of this country and for writing those documents. They literally were willing to give up everything. Yeah, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Yes, every bit of it. They really meant it. Mm-hmm. It's really tragic. Uh, you know, I hear, I, I'm, you know, I have pastor friends who, who don't agree with what you and I are talking about, mm-hmm. and um, and it's, you know, one of the things we're supposed to do as Christians is give people the benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. and a lot of them they just repeat the progressive narrative. You know that they were deists and. Another one is pursuit of happiness. So, so let's transition to a few of the key objections okay. that the modern church has to what we're saying. 
I address all this in the book, by the way, that the book is really meant to equip Christians with a complete and thorough, you know, exegesis of the topic mm-hmm. and also a rebuttal to the top uh, issues uh, or reasons that modern day evangelicals give uh, to not be involved. Mm-hmm. And so the number one reason, you know, if we were on Family Feud, what's the number one reason? <laughs> survey says. Yeah, the survey says <laughs> uh, you can't talk about politics because it conflicts with evangelism. Right. Would you agree that's near the top of the list? Oh, yes, I would say so. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's how we deal with this. First question I like to ask is, so did God have an evangelistic strategy in the Old Testament? And usually people can't answer that question. Mm -hmm. The answer is yes. He was just as concerned about saving the lost in the Old Testament as he is today. Yeah. Where do we find that? We find it in Deuteronomy 4. So this is the nearing the end of Moses' life. And he's talking to the Israelites. And he's really reaffirming everything that he told them earlier. And he says, listen, in Deuteronomy 4, he says, and I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. He says, listen, you guys need to govern justly. Because if you do, the nations of the world are going to look at you. And they're going to see it, this great nation that's, that's uh, being blessed by God. And they're going to come check you out. And they're mm-hmm. going to ask questions. And and by the way, this is why Israel is located at the crossroads of civilization. Anyone traveling anywhere uh, among the, the continents in antiquity would travel through that little landmass, that land mm-hmm. ring, uh, where Israel was, uh, was situated. It was the Grand Central Station of antiquity. And so, so God was very concerned about evangelism in the Old Testament. And the means of evangelism was that Israel would go into the promised land, that they would stay there. Yeah. They had a habit of leaving. Uh And that they would govern justly. And if they did, then the nation of the world would check them out. Mm -hmm. So your next question, I'm sure, is, well, did that ever happen? Enter the story of the Queen of Sheba, which is this wonderful story that uh, it's become a... um, you know, one of these analogies for people that make an entrance, right? She came in like the Queen of Sheba. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, because the Queen of Sheba came with a, a great caravan and, and mm-hmm. uh, it was really something. A lot of and pomp so, and circumstance. Yep, pomp and circumstance. But what happened? She came. She asked Solomon about, you know, she asked him all these questions. Nothing was too mm-hmm. hard for Solomon. He answered all her questions. And we read this. Uh, and what I do in the book, I have some fun with this. And I got some help from an Old Testament scholar. We basically wrote a narrative of her visit, mm-hmm. you know, about, I don't know, 10 pages or so in the book, describing this visit and, and what was happening. And then near the end of the visit, I, you know, I insert the passages in, uh, in I think it's First Kings, where she, uh, she's overwhelmed. It says mm-hmm. at one point that she's overwhelmed. And she says, how fortunate your people are to have you as their king. Uh, who is so wise and is able to administer justice the way that you are. She got it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) She understood. And then a little bit later on, you hear that all the nations of the world were coming to check out Israel. And so so that occurred. Now, your next question, I know it's on the tip of your tongue, is, (laughs) yeah, but was that a genuine conversion? Like, that's a reasonable question. Sure. And uh, this is what I love about the Bible. In a confrontation 
between Jesus and the Pharisees. You may remember this when I quote it. This is in, I think, uh, Matthew, I want to say Matthew 7 or somewhere in there. And so the, the Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they say, we want to see a sign. Now, now this is after he's, you know, cured people, fed people, mm -hmm. all this stuff. And, and you'll remember what Jesus says. He says, only a wicked generation asks yep. for a sign. Mm -hmm. The men of Nineveh, uh, you know, had someone show up. Basically, Jonah shows up. I'm paraphrasing now. That yeah, yeah. Exactly what Jesus said. But the, the men of Nineveh had this guy, Jonah, show up. He preaches a turn or burn message, and they accept it. Mm -hmm. And he says, the men of, men of Nineveh will stand in judgment over you. And then he says, the queen of the south traveled a long way to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She will stand in judgment over you. And, uh, and so in this, uh, this is what I love about the Bible. But it's not left to chance because of no, this conversation so. and how Jesus explains it. We know that we're going to see in heaven the men and women, you know, citizens from Nineveh, and the Queen of Sheba, and probably a lot of the people that were traveling with her at mm -hmm. that time, as evidence that that evangelistic strategy worked. Yeah. Okay. So now let's go to the uh, Matthew 28, which is the uh, Great Commission. Mm -hmm. And this is what they all point to, right? And so what does it say? Say, go out into all the world, to all the nations, and preach the gospel, making disciples of all nations. Mm -hmm. so there's a couple things to point out here. Number one, the difference between the gospel and the Old Testament is important to recognize. I mentioned earlier, Israel was supposed to do what? Go to the promised land and stay, stay there. there. <laughs> it was a stay strategy. Yes. Don't go anywhere. And they'll come to you. Justly. And so uh, and so this was something Jesus needed to clarify, right? Mm -hmm. He needed to say, listen, uh, change in plan. New marching mm -hmm. orders. I want you to go. So, so we're changing from a stay strategy to a go strategy. Yep. And, and by the way, you're going to make not disciples of all people. You're going to make disciples of all nations. Yeah. So once again, he's affirming that God's plan ultimately is to have nations that honor and follow him. Mm -hmm. So how does that happen? If, if Christians are not stepping forward to lead in, yeah. in the nations in which they find themselves, Mm -hmm. Who will? There's there's this great quote. Uh, Abigail Adams said it, and John Adams said it. Something to the effect of, um, uh, "The public business is is critically important. If wise men refuse it, others will not." And and they're exactly right. And mm -hmm. as we you know we know John Adams, his son John Quincy Adams, especially yeah. still, you know, almost seventy years in public service started at the age of 14 i think it's just amazing crazy. yeah it's crazy yeah, they understood it and mm -hmm. they were deeply religious people oh yeah so, uh so yeah so that's the number one answer right that people give and uh, and yet it's just the opposite the the idea that we shouldn't get involved uh starting first with hey you know what in america we're all about the law of nature and of nature's god it's in our fat national founding covenant so mm -hmm. you're explaining the the moral law and why it's important you know why is it important well because christians look at that and we realize we can't keep it that makes us sinners we need a savior jesus is that you're explaining the gospel there you go while you're explaining and i <laughs> excuse me i've done this uh at where i work i have a lot of conversations 
and including with senior leaders in my company. And these conversations go fine. I'm just explaining. I'm explaining right. the difference between the progressive worldview and the uh, and the founding worldview, and and why, for instance, a lot of us objected with the, the mandatory COVID shot. You know, to mm-hmm. get right down to a specific. Yeah. So you can't have those conversations if you don't understand the theology behind civil government and how we have inherited this incredible. Um, gift with the declaration as our national founding covenant. It's like a marriage covenant. It's a vow. These guys vow. And yet (laughs) the modern day evangelical establishment has no clue. It's, it's really sad, but that's true. That's the rebuttal to that particular question. So you want me to keep going on other? Sure. Absolutely. Next item on the list where we're still at family feud, right? (laughs) So the next item that people often talk about is, well, you know, the founders, they wrote that uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, they were children of the enlightenment and, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. And, you know, that just, that's not spiritual at all, this pursuit of happiness. And uh, so they'll use that as a reason to poo-poo the, uh, uh, the declaration. Mm-hmm. I have a whole chapter on this. <laughs> yeah. And so it turns out, that the phrase pursuit of happiness back then meant pursuing God as your conscience dictated. Now you'll remember there the you sons go. of liberty were, you know, really important in the American founding. And it was all about mm-hmm. liberty. Liberty is the ability to have and express opinions. They were, you know, really big on this. And they understood that you can't force people to have opinions. They were living in, in uh, 1776. They had a couple of hundred years of experience looking back at the medieval church where people were tortured for the faith. Mm -hmm. They wanted no parts of that. They were strong believers, but they wanted no parts of uh, torturing people. So America was rooted in liberty. And if you if you look, uh, for instance, at uh, I cite Blackstone. Are you familiar with William Blackstone? I know the name, but I'm not sure in what is all involved there. So he was a really important person. He was like the uh, Antonin Scalia of the 1760s and 1770s. Okay. He wrote a book called Commentaries on the Laws of England. And it was a modern treatise essentially on how to apply criminal principles from the Bible mm-hmm. to specific cases. And it was highly recognized. It's like the main legal textbook. If you wanted to be a lawyer, you read Blackstone. You, oh, you, you okay. Lincoln, Lincoln, uh, he was, remember, he was working in the store and he mm-hmm. had this barrel and he looked down at the bottom of the barrel and there was a copy of Blackstone and he read it. That, that's, that was his legal education. That <laughs> in the Bible. Yeah, and well, there you go. Literally, though, that's how good it was. The people yeah. would read Blackstone and then they'd go to the bar and get questions and, and all that. So Blackstone, at the beginning of this book, he's got about 20 pages where he basically says, listen, before I explain how to apply the law, I just want to describe the law to you and how to think about it. And he goes on and on and on. And at one point he says, uh, God did not uh, overcomplicate things for us. He basically, he says the law of nature, uh, we just need to follow the law of nature. And and the law of nature is revealed to us through the Bible. Again, I'm paraphrasing. I I have all the quotes in the book. And then he says, uh, any laws that are contrary to the law of of nature are invalid. 
laws. And that's a really important mm-hmm. point. Yep. And later on, he says, he basically God summarizes it all down to this, that if man wants to pursue happiness, he should just follow the law. And the opposite is true. If man follows the law, it logically follows that he will be happy. And so God summarizes it this way. Man should pursue his own happiness. That's exactly what he says. <laughs> and if, now that you know that, if you're looking at other resources, other things written in that period, you'll find that phrase is used all the time. And, and I include those in the book. The most important thing I cite in the book, though, on this topic is the reference to the 1828 uh, Webster Dictionary. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it was the first dictionary. Uh, Noah Webster spent like 20, over 20 years developing this thing. I have a, a copy. Wow. Of it. It's this thing. Every word has like 10 definitions. <laughs> I mean, it, it is so thorough. And for each definition, not for each, but for many definitions, there is a phrase or a reference, and half of them are from the Bible. And so if you look up the word happy in the 1828 Webster Dictionary, which is a definitive reference for what those folks meant at that period when they used those sure. words, you got to go sure. back to that. Otherwise, you're just guessing. Yeah. And, and you read it, and it says that uh, ultimately man can only be happy truly happy if they find favor in the mind of God. Uh, And they have several other uh, definitions of happiness. They cite scripture, like there's one in Ecclesiastes. I I forget the exact, it's all in the book. You can, you can look it up chapter seven. And and I make the point that uh, far from being a, uh, a tempting carrot for an American to go off and and pursue a pagan lifestyle, they were referring to protecting every individual's right to pursue God as their conscience dictated, mm-hmm. including rejecting God. But listen, here's the deal. You can reject God, but if you want to be a great American, you've got to agree to this covenant. Right. That's what it comes down to. Just like you and your spouse, you get married. Uh, by the way, when you get married, you follow that same four-step approach. Acknowledge, mm-hmm. appeal, commit, declare. There same you thing. Go. So, and it is a covenant. It is a covenant. It's a serious thing. Yeah. So uh, the pursuit of happiness, that's like the number two thing that I hear uh, that's just not true. Number three might be that they were deists. Once I've, you heard, I've heard that many times. Oh, my gosh. People, even Christians, are, we just parrot it like it's true. Yeah. yeah. And I have to admit, I in the 80s and 90s, I'd heard it, and I thought, well, maybe they were deists. Mm-hmm. And until I went through the Bible and I just looked at all this and laid it out, uh, I again, I couldn't, I didn't understand the theology behind behind it so i couldn't refute it so anyway uh they clearly were not deists if you you look at the theology and then you look at this incredible document god's mentioned multiple times you know pursuit of happiness Mm -hmm. uh, appealing to the supreme ruler of the universe okay if you were a deist you would never appeal to god because you assume he's not engaged so it's it's really silly to even believe Mm -hmm. that based on that document alone so uh, they weren't deists. Uh, that's in the book as well. And then another one, probably the last one that I'll talk about that tends to be really complicated today, given the, the progressive push to um, insist that America is institutionally racist. They'll say that uh, racism was cooked right into the founding of our nation. And they'll refer 
to the three-fifths clause in the Constitution, which talks about how uh, states would get apportion how many people uh, they needed in order to figure out how many representatives they would have. Are mm -hmm. you familiar with the three-fifths clause? Have you heard that? I have not heard that, no. Well, this, this is a, a very common one, and it catches you know Christians off guard if you've never heard of it or you've heard mm -hmm. of it, you don't really know what it means. And so here's, here's what was going on. In 1787, at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, they got to the point where they were figuring out representation. Okay. And so the question was, how many reps would you have uh, for a state given a certain population? And they mm -hmm. finally agreed that the number would be 30,000. So for every 30,000 people, you'd have one representative. So if okay. you had you know, 300,000 and two people, you would have 10 representatives. So then the question came up about slavery. Now, what was happening at that period was the Northern states were all wanting to abolish slavery. They were trying to figure out how to weave this into the document. Of course, the Southern states wanted no part of that conversation. Yeah, they wanted and, to keep it. Yeah, they were. Well, you know what they said first is, we're not here to talk about that issue. We're here to talk about these folks that are trying to, you know, <laughs> uh, put us into tyranny, which is ironic, right? Because they have slaves. Yeah. That, that, yeah. Anyway. So earlier, around 1781, I think, they had had this conversation. And they were trying to figure out how do you uh, tax people based on property? And do you count slaves as property? And they had arrived at that point, they had arrived on this idea of a three-fifths classification. And so they just borrowed that during the Constitutional Convention. And they basically said, listen, regarding slavery, if you have slaves, then we want them to be represented, right? Because they didn't want to just discount them all together. Sure. But you have to have 50,000 slaves to get one representative versus 30,000 slaves to get a representative. Okay. 30,000 free people. And so what that meant was that uh, the the uh, southern states, or the, all the states who had slaves, would have less legislative power in the new federal Congress. And that's what the North was also very concerned about. Mm -hmm. And so the way the numbers worked out is if you do the straight math, the 1790 census, there were about 640,000 slaves, I think. And so if you do the math, if you divide by uh, 30,000, I think the number comes out to 23, uh, 23 um, representatives. But if you divide by 50,000, the number is 13. Mm -hmm. Now that's the straight math. That, right. When you get to state by state, you do it for each state. So, so mm -hmm. there wasn't a difference of 10. I think it ended up being a difference of about seven uh, in the Congress. And I show all this in the, in the book. I lay out the numbers. Uh, some people have heard the argument that three-fifths did not mean the worth of the slave. What it meant was it was trying to do two things. Number one, limit the, the legislative power that the pro-slavery states in the South would have in the new government. And mm. number two, it was meant to incent, to incentivize those Southern states to abolish slavery. Because the moment they did, they would get what? More, More representation. So, so that is what they were trying to do. And if you actually look at the numbers, because when people say the three-fifths clause, oh my gosh, this is terrible. Okay, did you want to uh, have them count as equally as free people? Because if you had done that, 
then the split between North and South in terms of number of reps would have been almost 50, 50. Hmm. It would have been almost impossible to, uh, in order to start to push uh, abolitionist legislation. So right. with the three fifths clause, it was, uh, I forget the numbers. I think it was like 44 to 56. There was a clear majority, at least mm -hmm. at that point. So, so that's the answer to the three fifths clause. And then part B of the whole slavery question is, well, why didn't they just get rid of slavery altogether? And the answer to that is, well, at that point in time, the federal government had like no power. In fact, that's the whole reason why they got together. The federal government was impotent. It couldn't mm -hmm. do anything. And so it wasn't even possible. It was the states that had to do something if yeah. anything was going to get done. So then the question I know you're about to ask is, well, what did the states do? And if you look at the record, and I show this on the book, in the book, by mm -hmm. 1800, all the northern states had uh, passed legislation to outlaw slavery. And, and this happened gradually. I, I don't want to make it sound like right. it was done automatically. But they took moves. And uh, over the next 10 to 20 years, they continued to pass legislation to ultimately abolish slavery. And so the states did exactly what the founders expected them to do, to take action. Mm -hmm. So uh, this this push that says, well, they were institutionally racist and all that, it's not true. It's not accurate. Uh, and so I explain all that in the book as well. Good. And, you know, and the thing is, I also hear some Christians, thankfully not a lot, but if I hear any, it's one too many. I, sh I feel I have no need to vote because my vote doesn't matter. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking, I'm sorry, but um, where did you come from? <laughs> I mean, that is so untrue. And every Christian should vote and you should vote your values. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have a whole chapter comparing progressivism to our, our founding biblical principles. In fact, I have a, a bunch of tables. One table is uh, you know, engineers love tables, right? Yeah, right. So, so I've got one table that goes through all the Ten Commandments and basically says, here's, uh, you know, what it means and here's what the progressives uh, want to do. And on nearly every count, they are counter to God's moral law. Mm -hmm. So honestly, uh, over my lifetime, you know, maybe 30 years ago, there were, you know, more Joe Liebermans or, you know, Democrats that were more reasonable. But that's not the case at all no. anymore. No, and, it's not. Are just ignorant. They have no idea. So this is this is why I wrote the book. And then there's one last thing I want to cover, which is what's the roadmap? You know, the subtitle of the book is "Roadmap to Restore America." Yep. And so the the simple way to think about this, if, if I just because I know I throw a lot of information at you, audience, <laughs> if you step back and just say, you know, there are five questions that Christians need to ask themselves. Question number one, what does God expect from the nations? Question number two, who does God expect to lead these nations? Question number three, what is the Christian response when living under a just governing authority? By the way, it's submit and pray. That's where there you go. Is. Number four, what's the proper response when a governing authority is governing unjustly? And then number five, and this is the important one, the last chapter, what is the biblical remedy for a nation that has turned its back on God? Because that's where we are right now. Oh, yeah. And the question is, what do we need to do to, to get God engaged? 
and ideally to get the church engaged. So I wrote the book, you know, to provide a biblical explanation to hopefully mm -hmm. get the church engaged, but that won't get God engaged. And so here's what we have to do. Again, look to the Bible. You remember your Old Testament? Yep. The Old Testament had a lot of kings, most of them bad. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of them were pretty good. King Josiah, who lived in the 7th century B.C., uh, remember during his reign, they were cleaning out the temple and found the book of the law, and then they read it to him, and he was like, uh-oh, we, uh, we were way off track here. <laughs> exactly. And, and do you remember what he did? He, he got all the people together. They went to the temple, and they read the covenant aloud. They read the book of the law. Yep. They read it aloud, and they recommitted. Mm -hmm. And God blessed the reign. The same thing happened when Nehemiah went back in 444 B.C. He went back to rebuild the wall. Rebuild the wall, yep. Went back, they rebuilt the wall, Ezra was there. And when they were done rebuilding the wall, Ezra, I think I think it was Ezra read the book of the law, took all morning, and when they were done, they all agreed, we're in. And mm -hmm. I think in that text it even says that the priests signed their names. Uh, you know, it was it was a it was a formal recommitment. Yeah. And so this is what we need to do. We as a nation have to have a national conversation about who are we as Americans. And the answer to that question is found in nowhere else but the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. And Christians are the ones best equipped to explain it and to talk about it. And so what I'm trying to do with the book is create a national conversation about who are we as Americans, ideally to recommit. And I'm hoping we do this like in the next year and a half. Right. Do it <laughs> quickly. Uh, because... Uh, I think we all agree. I mean, if you're again, I'm an engineer. I'm going to mm -hmm. tell you uh, things are really bad in case uh, you yeah. don't. Uh, yeah, I, I already knew that. <laughs> I can tell you all the ways this is not going to go well. That's what that's what engineers do. We're annoying that way. Yeah. Uh, however, I'm convinced that if we follow the biblical pattern, it's right there in front of us. Mm -hmm. If we follow it, just like our founders did, mm -hmm. I think God will uh, restore America. It's not going to be easy no we're going to go through the same kind of difficulty the founding generation did but but that's the template if we want to restore america that's what we have to do and that's yeah. what the last chapter in the book is about that very question yeah i i couldn't agree more that's that's the whole problem that we face as a nation is that gradually over time we have forgot about our founding and who blessed this country and the founding of it. And it wasn't our founding fathers that blessed it. Yeah, they helped form it, but it was God that blessed it because right. the founders put it on a godly foundation and they led it in a moral, godly way. That's why we got blessed the way we were and have been for since the founding of our nation, for that matter. And for us to turn our back on that, it won't, it doesn't well and it isn't leading to to a good outcome. No, and we shouldn't expect it to. No. We shouldn't expect it to. I mean, if I, I boil it down to, to a couple of things, one, we should get engaged because God demands it. Mm -hmm. He demanded it in Genesis 9, 5, and 6. This is not optional. He demands yeah. Christian step forward and help in, uh, establish and maintain liberty and justice for all. That's what he expects. Number two, he's told us that if we don't do this, he's going to judge us. Yep. And there's there's no um, there's nothing wrong with wanting to avoid God's judgment. No, I mean, I'm all for it. 
<laughs> I'm all for avoiding that. I, I don't want that that uh, discipline session. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Uh, and then lastly, and this this is where you know we can have the conversation about civil disobedience, but we have a right to our lives. Yeah. We have a right. This is what it comes down to. We have a right to live in harmony with God's moral law, that law that permeates and sustains the universe. We have a right to live in harmony with that. He's told us we have a right, and he's told us to defend that right. Mm -hmm. And so we, we need to be stepping forward in prudent ways. Even right. the founder said that, right? Remember, there's a sentence in the declaration. Uh, I forget the whole sentence, but they use the word prudence because you just don't, you know, run into a hail of gunfire. But, <laughs> not uh, that's not wisdom. That's not wisdom. Certainly, uh, I would not do that until I have completed the recommitment part. Yes, uh, yes. Literally, this is the first thing we need to do, I, I believe. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely agree. Yeah, we need to get back to our founding principles, and uh, and things would we would be a lot better off, that's for sure. Yep. Amen. So, yeah, so that's that's my story. And, and you're sticking to it. Word out. I really appreciate you having me. Uh, I appreciate you being on. I, I was looking forward to it when I read the your title of your book and thought, and I read some more of the bio. I thought, man, that I like that. That's good. I like it a lot. I do have a website. If folks want to go check out, you can buy the book there. It's uh, defendamericanliberty.com. You can also reach out to me. I, you know, I, I love to go and talk to churches and try and equip, you know, answer questions. I, it's very reasonable that people have questions. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, my I feel like God's called me to, you know, do the uh, be the answer guy and and help go out and equip people and ideally churches to be able to have the conviction to stand on their faith and do what it's mm -hmm. going to take. So you can reach out to me there. It's also on Amazon the book. You can you can buy it there. If you do that, Sounds leave good. a review for me if you would. There you go. Uh, but yeah, uh, we would love to hear from folks if they want to reach out to me through my website, defendamericanliberty.com. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Mark, I uh, appreciate you being on tonight and appreciate you giving us the time, especially on a Friday night. And, uh, and it was a good conversation. And I hope people will go out and get your book and check out your website, do all of that. And most of all, I hope the impression will be left upon people that we need to turn this country around and get back to our founding principles. And that foundation is obviously God. Yeah, and one last thing uh, I forgot to mention, too. On my website, in the upper right, when you go there, I also have a petition on there. You can click on the button. It'll take you to a petition. And the petition is nothing more than saying, I agree that we need to recommit. There's a, there's a paragraph or two, and I think the declaration's there. But uh, it's just a start. But what I, I'm hoping to do is get, you know, 100,000 signatures and take it to uh, uh, my congressman, or actually Jim Jordan is our next door uh, oh, there you go. Here in Cincinnati. But uh, but yeah, I'm hoping to to eventually start a movement that'll lead to a formal recommitment. And that's a way that, that your listeners can, you know, help in a small way. Here's where your vote matters, to your point earlier. Right, right. To, to be heard and, and hopefully to, as a nation, turn back to God. Yep. Amen to all that. I completely agree. Well, again, Mark, thank you for being on the We the People podcast tonight. And uh, I encourage everybody listening to, you know, to share this podcast, to subscribe, and then to go out and get his book. 
um, rediscovering the American Covenant roadmap to restore America because we need it and we need God's blessing and we need to follow God's guidance in this in this whole thing. So thank you very much, Mark, and we appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You bet. Have a good night and uh, God bless you. God bless you too, brother.